If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown Church, and so, uh, so glad that we could start our week off this way, worshiping God together. It's kind of weird. You got all the food up front and the coffee up front, and people are like, oh man, I'm stuck. Hey, make yourself at home and get the coffee. I'm a, you know, I know I'm not that awesome of a speaker enough to keep you awake the whole time. You're going to need that? That's good. Okay. Well, hey, uh, as many of y'all know, uh, I've got three kids, and they're adorable, and uh, I've got, uh, they're, they're in a really fun stage right now. Uh, Camp and Enoch are both eight. Camp turns nine in a couple weeks. Uh, Della, my little girl, she just turned five at the end of September. And so they're, they're now at this stage where, like, it's just a lot of fun to play with them, and kind of we can play games all together. We'll play family board games or card games or boys are playing basketball. We're, I mean, we're playing all kinds of games together, and that's kind of a new thing for us, especially all together, because Della is three, three and a half years younger than the boys. And so she's kind of been lagging behind. It's hard to play games and include her, you know, and uh, not only because of her age, but also for those of you who know her, she's like extremely happy-go-lucky, which is, you know, adorable. But when you play games, it also means that rules don't actually apply to her, or she's just kind of doesn't get the concept she knows we're playing a game. It should just be fun. And so she's going to do whatever is fun, even if it goes against the rules. And so that's kind of how it is. It's been that way for a little while. And uh, that showed up in all kinds of games, board games and stuff like that. But also in like classic games like hide and go seek or, uh, or the, the all-time classic red light, green light. I don't know when the last time you guys played red light, green light is, but I highly recommend it. Very fun. Um, Boys love it. Della would love it, but she would never obey the rules, right? And so you line up. I'd line up the kids and Camp and Enoch. Again, they're, they're two months apart in age. And so all competition is very serious for them. They've got to you know, prove who's better no matter what they're doing. And, uh, and so they, I mean, they're going to take it serious. They're going to say green light. They're going to take off to run as fast as they can. They want to win. But Della, she's just like, you know, just in her own little world. And so when you say green light, the boys take off. She starts too. But then you say red light, the boys know they stop. But she, she just kind of hears red light as move in a different way. All right. And so she just kind of just starts skipping is that, that's a pretty good skip. It's just skipping or she's, or she, you know, she's just kind of does the sneaky move, like I can't see her, and, uh, but she just will keep moving. She will not stop, and of course, that makes the boys as mad as can be, but I can't correct her because she, you've seen her. She's so cute. How do I, how do I correct her? Which is not going to bode well later, but, you know, anyways, so she just wins green, red light, green light every time. She's, there's no stopping her. What? I tell you that story because it's, as cheesy as this connection might be, um, I was reminded of that when I was reading the passage that we're going to be looking at today in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. Because in this passage, what you see is that there is a, a group of people, the, the authorities of that day, the religious authorities of the day, who are trying with all their might to stop God from moving the gospel forward trying to stop God from advancing the gospel, getting the gospel to fill Jerusalem and get to every man, woman, child and go beyond, you know, spill over to the ends of the earth. They're trying to stop God. They're they're saying, stop. They're saying, red light. And what you see in this passage is God will not be stopped. There's no stopping him. He just keeps on moving. 
making sure the gospel continues to reach more and more people. And so, if you will, turn to Acts chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 12. As you turn there, let me say uh, you know, a quick thing about um, the series. We're, we're in this series, The Birth of a Movement. We're actually going to wrap up the series next week, uh, and which has kind of gone through the first part of the book of Acts. And then we'll pick up in Acts later sometime next year. But uh, we'll, after Thanksgiving, we're going to start a new series, Advent series on worship. I'm really excited about. But anyways, we're, uh, we're going to look at this passage here. And what, what we'll see is uh, God just unstoppable movement to move the gospel forward. Um, let me uh, begin in verse 12. Let me one more way, one more thing in way of set up here. Uh, at the beginning, these first few verses, 12 through 16, um, Luke gives a summary. And it's, it's helpful to point out that throughout Acts, he's given different summaries along the way. If you've been with us, you've heard us point that out. All the summaries so far have been summaries about how the church has been relating with one another. He'll give a quick like, summary statement about the incredible community the church has been experiencing with one, one another. Think about the end of Acts chapter 2. Think about the end of Acts chapter 4. But here Luke gives a summary about how the church has been relating with the city. What God has been doing in the city. And it's pretty fascinating. What you see is that through the church, God has been moving the gospel forward. This great forward movement. So here's what he says. Verse 12. says, The apostles performed... Many signs and wonders among the people. Now, let me pause already and just say that as this is a strong statement about God's power moving through the church in order to get the attention of the city. And I want to point out that this is a direct answer to prayer to what the apostles had prayed back in, the, uh, in chapter 4. In fact, I've got it up here. Acts 5, 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. Now, notice this is what they had prayed for in Acts 4. Verse 30, stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So like God is at work answering the prayer to get the attention of people through signs and wonders so people would be drawn to Jesus. So this is what, Paul, uh, this is what Luke starts off with. And then he says, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, which was a portion of the temple. And no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Now when we Pause there, too, to say that literally that means not no one else dared join them. But the rest, that's the literal, the rest dared not join them. And the rest is a segment of Christians, okay? So what he says here and what he's about to say next doesn't make any sense next to each other unless you understand the people who aren't joining them are some Christians. So all the Christians continue to meet publicly in the temple, except that there was, there was some, the rest didn't join them meeting publicly because you remember there's severe persecution, the threat of persecution, I should say, against the church. So there was this portion of the church that said, you know what, even with the threat of, of the religious authorities saying, do not talk about Jesus in public, there was many Christians who continued to gather in the temple publicly and talk about Jesus, but there were few who were too afraid to do that. So they didn't dare join Nevertheless, as it says, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And so even with those that were still public about their faith, God used them to move the gospel forward. More and more people are believing. It's pretty, pretty awesome. Now, keep going. Verse 15. Um, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and lay them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. 
And crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Okay, now I want to draw attention to a couple statements here. First is this statement that highlighted in yellow. Uh, crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem. Like this is the first time in the book of Acts that we see that the gospel is spilling out beyond, the, the, beyond Jerusalem to the towns outside of Jerusalem. And that's significant because if you remember, beginning of Acts, what does Jesus say to the disciples? Acts 1.8. Hey, the, the Spirit's going to come on you in power. And you're going to be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem. That's where they were. But then going from Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that you see God, Jesus is saying, here's the plan. You're going to be my witnesses. By what, by what power? By the Spirit. But how? Geographically saturating places with the gospel. And what you see here is that this is now spilling over out of Jerusalem into the surrounding towns. More and more people are hearing the gospel. God is moving the gospel forward. The movement is going forward. All right, cool. This is what God's doing. This is Luke gives this summary here. He's like, I want you to know this is how, this is what God's up to. It's amazing. The gospel continues to move out in power. Now, let me also say one more thing about this miracle or the miracles, and uh, that being that um, if, you, if you are here just exploring faith in Christ and you, you know, read something like people put their sick out hoping that Peter's shadow would go by them and be healed, and you're thinking, man, if people believe that, if we in this room believe that actually happened, then perhaps you're thinking we're as naive as you thought that we were, uh, or perhaps you're thinking something nicer than that, but, you know, something... I just want you to know that I, I get, like, this is crazy, right? Shadows, healing. If you look closely at the passage, you don't actually see for sure whether that worked or not, but people were doing it in hopes that it worked, and certainly God was doing signs and wonders to heal many people. So miracles were happening. So you think, man, man that's like, that's weird, right? It is. But um, what I'd have you if, you, if you are just exploring faith, I, just one thing I'd encourage you to chew on is this. Um, if it's possible that there's a God, then it's not impossible that there would be miracles, right? If there is a God, then certainly he would have the power to do the miraculous. And so what I would want to encourage you to do is don't get caught up on this, right? I mean, if you think this is too hard to swallow, don't let that trip you up. Do what, let it do what miracles are intended to do, which is to point you to, the, to God and you ask the question, well, is there a God? And then you can start looking at the evidence specifically who Jesus is and his life and his death and his claims and how he loved people. And you start looking at evidence of him, and then you can determine if there's a God. If there's a God, the miracles are possible. All right, so that's what these miracles were doing. They're pointing people to Jesus. And as a result of these signs and wonders, God was adding more and more people to the men and women believing all the time. The gospel is spilling out outside of Jerusalem. The gospel is moving forward. That's what Luke is saying here in this summary. And as a result, enters, uh, opposition enters once again. So picking back up, here's what you start seeing. And uh, starting in verse 17, and what you're going to see, <laughs> I'll try to have some fun with here, is um, the rest of this passage tells this awesome story about how, what the religious authorities of that day were trying to do to stop the gospel from moving forward and how God would not be stopped. And so I'm going to have some fun with this play, and it's going to be kind of 
cheesy, but I'm going to go with this whole red light, green light thing. So first, you'll see red light, verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. And they arrested the apostles and they put them in public jail. Okay, stop there. This is, this is the religious authorities saying, hey, enough of this. Like, I've, quit talking about Jesus. Red light, stop it. Don't do this anymore. We're, we mean business, so much so that we're going to throw you in jail. And guys, just point out, this is not like Peter and John thrown in jail in chapter 4. This is all 12. This is all the apostles thrown in jail. So they gather them up. They stick them in prison. It's public jail so that people would know, like public humiliation. Dis- you know, you got to disassociate from these guys. Don't have anything to do. This is them saying, stop it. But look what God does. He won't be stopped. Verse 18. Uh, verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. Um, and at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. I'll stop there. I can see what happens. God doesn't miss a beat. Religious authorities, stop this, throw you in jail. By the very next morning, they're back out on the street talking about Jesus. Won't be stopped. Now look how people responded. Picking back up in verse, into verse 21. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, like all of the bigwigs are here, and they sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail... The officers did not find them there, and so they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And on hearing this report, the captains of the temple guards and the chief priests were, I love this, they were at a loss, right? What a great understatement, wondering what this might lead to. (laughs) What in the world? What's going on here? Then it says, uh, someone called, came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. And the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Here's what the high priest says, verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. We said red light. We said stop, right? This is what we said. But yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, this statement right here, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, that's a phenomenal statement. I mean, it just shows how powerfully God is working to get the gospel to Jerusalem, right? This is the high priest. It's happened. You filled Jerusalem. Jerusalem is saturated with the gospel. We've been telling you to stop it, and you won't stop it. But now we're saying, you better stop it. (laughs) But God won't be stopped. And so look what Peter says in response. Peter and the other apostles, verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, Hey, we must obey God rather than human beings. Or put another way, he says, and we must obey God instead of you guys. You're telling us to stop, but we're not going to stop. We won't be stopped. See, because we're going to obey God rather than you. 
Then he goes on, says, The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And I just love this because not only do the apostles say, no, we won't stop. We're going to obey God instead of you. But then they launch into doing the very thing that the <laughs> Sanhedrin saying, don't do anymore. They're like, oh, you got, you got the whole gang here? Great, we've got something to tell y'all. Here, here's what happened. And you know, Jesus died. Y'all know that because you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. And his God raised him from the dead, exalted him as prince and savior so that he would forgive all your sins. And like they just launch into the gospel. Won't, God won't be stopped. Now, of course, this makes them very upset. And so verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and they wanted to put them to death. Like, this is how serious we are. You better stop it or we're going to kill you. Shut up or die. That's how mad they are. But then look at what happens. Like, you would think possibly what happens next is that they then kill them. Again, this is the Sanhedrin. This is the high priest. This is the group of people that not too long before, not, not too much, you know, away from this time, like, uh, had they had just decided to kill, this is a group decided to kill Jesus, to crucify Christ. And so they said, right, now we're so mad we're going to kill you. They, that's something they could have acted on, but look what God does. This is fascinating. Verse 34. But a Pharisee named uh, Gamaliel, I think, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin. And he ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed, so the, little, the men put outside, that's the apostles. So then he, then he addressed the Sanhedrin. And he says, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. So some time ago, Thaddeus appeared, claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him. But he was killed, and his followers dispersed, and it all came of nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and he led a band of people in revolt. But he too was killed, and of all of his, all of his followers scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. Meaning, we killed their leader. We killed Jesus. And so if it's a human origin, this is going to fail. But, verse 39, if it is from God, you will not be able to what? You will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And in verse 40, we're told, his speech persuaded them. Now, is that not fascinating? How wild is this? Like this guy, and Luke's clear to say that Gamaliel um, is this honored guy amongst all the people. So he's just the right guy at just the right time when they're about to kill the, the apostles. For some reason, he, not a follower of Christ, decides to stick his neck out to defend the apostles to make a case for their release. And by the power of God... He persuades the group of people to where they then decide instead, you know what, we're going to kill them, but instead let's just let them go. 
You know I mean? It's not like, no, we, let's keep them in jail. We won't kill them. No, let's just straight up let them, let them go. Like, how wild is that? Green light. God's not going to be stopped. Now, of course, they weren't completely done. And so what we read here in verse, in verse 40, he says, and so the speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, and they had them flogged, which is no little thing, and had them severely beaten. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, but then they let them go. So one last gasp. Hey, red light, remember we said that. We're going to beat you. We're going to tell you. Do not talk about Jesus anymore. But then they let him go. And then what happens? End of the passage, 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name And so day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never what? They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. (laughs) I love this story. Man, I just, I just, it's fascinating to me. And it's just so like so much back and forth and all the drama and interesting stuff. I mean, it's just really, I love this. I love the story. But you think, okay, well, all right. What do we do with that, right? I mean, other than, hey, let me tell you a Bible story. So I just wish I just did. But like, what, what do we do with this? What do we take away from this? What's, you know, what's relevant here? What's helpful here? Well, let me try to point out in the remaining time I have uh, three, three takeaways for us. The first takeaway is this. Um, how do I put it? The first takeaway is God is super committed to advancing the gospel. I'm not sure super is the exact adjective or just, yeah, that I'm looking for here, but he's uh, uh, super, like he's supremely, perhaps, he's, he's incredibly committed to advancing the gospel. Do you see that in this? Like he won't be stopped. It's God ultimately the, is the one who's making sure that the gospel would continue to move forward, that more and more people would hear the good news that Jesus is the Savior who died in the place, in our place, for our sins, so that we can be reconciled to God through forgiveness and through him, through faith in his forgiveness. And so he's making sure that goes out so that more men and women would believe, so that it would fill all of Jerusalem. And what I love about this passage, guys, is you see God do that in, in, in like three different ways. Like, again, I think about Della. You say red light, and she just changes her methodology of moving forward. Well, like, if you authorities say red light to God, he just changes his methodology, but he's still moving forward. And so first you see him doing it in these supernatural ways, right? And so, like, the signs and wonders, or, you know, as crazy as it is, like, the, the angel showing up and letting the apostles out of jail. It's like, nothing's stopping me. Supernatural ways. You see God continue to advance the gospel through another way, through his faithful followers. His followers who would say, no, 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 we're not going to stop. We're going to obey God rather than man. And so they just keep on presenting the gospel. You also see God moving the gospel forward through, uh, really through the persuasive appeal of someone who actually opposed the movement. Through Gamaliel. That Three different ways in this passage you see God's commitment to advance the gospel. He won't be stopped. And guys, that should tell us a few things, right? 
One, it should tell us that sharing the gospel with people is very important. It's a big deal. And, and hear this, it's a big deal to God. It's a big deal to God. It's what he is doing in the world. It's what he's up to to make sure that the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He's moving the gospel forward. It's a big deal to him. And we should thank him for that, shouldn't we? I mean, if you think about it, it's God's commitment to continue to move the gospel forward is the reason why 2,000 years later and half the world removed, we're sitting here today in the elementary school in Austin, Texas, having heard and had an opportunity to respond to the gospel message. Like that, friends, is God's doing. He's the one who's making sure that it continues to move forward. And we, I don't know if you ever take time to rejoice and praise him for that truth, but man, we should. In fact, let's do that right now. Let's just pray and thank God for that. God, we do. We thank you. We thank you for your commitment to the gospel. That not only would you send your son to die in our place so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then, Lord, you have been committed to make sure that, that message, the incredible good news, gets out to people. You are the one making it happen. And God, the fact that we know the gospel and we've had a chance to respond to it, Lord, that is a gift from you. And we give you praise. We just thank you for your incredible love and your commitment to that. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Guys, that's the first thing I think we can take away from this. God is super committed to seeing that the gospel advance. We should give him praise for that. That should tip us off on how important it is. The second takeaway that I think we can take from this is is, uh, that, how do I put it here? Uh, It's beneficial to evaluate the truth of the gospel. It's beneficial to evaluate the truth of the gospel, or I could say here, the historical truth of the gospel. And here's what I mean. When, when Gamaliel uh, stands up and he makes this case to the Sanhedrin, he, he, they are furious. I mean, they are just as mad as can be and so opposed to ever thinking that the, 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 what the apostles were saying could ever be true, that this gospel message is true. And yet he stands up and he says, hey, hey we should at least look at evidence, right? When we know how things play out in history— that there's people, they, they, they rise up and then they lead a revolt. But if you kill them, then everyone disperses. It has no staying power ultimately unless, unless it does have staying power. And then maybe that should cause us to at least evaluate if what they're saying is true. Because if we're trying to stop them, but there's really we're trying to stop God, then that's of no use. So he makes this, he makes this appeal for the people to use rational thinking to evaluate whether the gospel has any merit. And guys, notice, God uses that to continue the gospel moving forward. That's shown to be a positive thing. Here's my point. Some of us, especially if you're here, you're exploring faith in Christ, and you're, you know, you're trying to decide if there's anything to this. There's this kind of concept that for some, some reason kind of gets lodged in our mind, which is that faith in Christ is just a matter of like, it's, it's like you only believe it if you've got like the, this emotional feeling, like it just burns in your heart, this is true, or, or something like that, or, or you feel like you just have to have blind faith. Like you just have to like, I don't, you know, I just, I guess I just believe. I don't know. It's not founded on anything. I just blind faith. And that's, that's not what you see in Christianity. 
that the, the Christian faith hinges, like rises and falls. The, the crux of it, the fundamental element of the Christian faith is a historical event that either happened or did not happen. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the whole thing is founded on. And because it's founded on a historic event, we have the ability, the God-given opportunity to evaluate whether it's reasonable to believe or not. Now, short of a time machine, you can't guarantee, you can't prove it. You can't go back and see it, be there when the stone rolls away and there's Jesus and like, I saw it with my own. We won't have that ability. But just like anything else in history, you have the ability to evaluate based on historical evidence whether it's reasonable belief, whether it happened or not. <laughs> All I have to say is if you're exploring faith in Christ, I would want you to know that and, and, and really invite you and encourage you to ask questions, to actually look at the evidence, to really evaluate it. I was reminded how important this is. This week, when uh, Krista's hanging out with some of our neighbors on, on Tuesday night, they had an a all-girl happy hour, and uh, they, uh, it started at like 6, and she didn't get home till midnight, so they were having, they were having fun. Um, but uh, part, one part of the conversation, one of the neighbors uh, just uh, is asking Krista about our adoption process and if we would ever adopt again or anything like that. And Krista was saying that, you know, just how God led us through that first time and, and we're looking to lead his leading us to whether we would adopt again. And she just says, well, what do you mean lead, God leading you? What does that look like? And so she begins to explain how God uses, Krista's explaining how God uses certain things, you know, the opportunities that open up or opportunities that, that close as a kind of an indicator whether God's leading us one way or the other. And the neighbor says, hey, no, 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 no. That's not, how, that's not how God works, right? Like, it's just, you can't use your mind. It's just faith or, you know, it's not reason. You can't, like, that's not God. That's not how that God works. And Chris was like, well, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like, God, God invites us to use our mind. And we're called to actually worship God with all of our mind. And, like, yeah, faith comes into a huge, you know, plays a huge part. However, it's not, it's not like unsubstantiated faith. It's, it's not blind faith. There's, it's a reasonable faith. And then she starts talking about Jesus and about how, you know, as like what I was just saying earlier, that, 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 that because of the way that what the entire faith hinges on is a historical event, like all Christianity gives you an opportunity to evaluate based on using your reason, based on evidence. And she was, the neighbor was just kind of blown away by that whole, whole idea. Because I just want you to see, if you're exploring, like, ask the questions. Look at the evidence. If you're here with a friend, grab them and say, hey, let's talk about this. I want to know what this guy was talking about when he says there's evidence or whatever. You know, or if you want to do some self-study, we've got a couple books up here. These two I'd highly recommend, Case for Christ and The Reason for God. They're my gift to you if you want to do that. You have to promise to read it if you pick it up for free, but you can come get this later after the service. And those are great books that look at the actual evidence to help you explore whether Christianity is true. So that's one of the takeaways, right? It's beneficial to evaluate the truth of the gospel. Last takeaway here, and I just not going to have as much time as I want to on this point, but he, this is a, I love this. So the, the final takeaway is this, that there's really two things we see here, two things Christians need in order to participate in advancing the gospel with God. 
Two things that Christians need in order to participate in advancing gospel with God. And just remember, like God's the one who's ultimately doing it. And he's going, no, there's no stopping him. But if you want to participate in eternally significant things that are, God says is so important, you want to join him in that as he's invited you to do, then there's two things you need to participate with him in this. The first thing that we see from the, the apostles here is that, you, is that you need strong convictions. Strong convictions. Like think about what they said in verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. What's their strong conviction? We're going to obey God. That's what I've decided. We're going to obey God. And friends, if you're going to participate in advancing the gospel with God, you have to decide, I'm going to obey God. You think, well, well, did God call me to do that? Did he command me to do that? Yeah, the apostles certainly believe that he did, right? It's like they're saying, Sanhedrin, stop talking about Jesus. (laughs) The apostles say, we can't stop talking about Jesus because Jesus told us to talk about Jesus. And we're going to obey Jesus instead of of you. I mean, think about this. When Jesus says, be my witnesses, command. When Jesus said, Matthew 28, 90, go therefore and make disciples. This is clearly what they're called to do, guys. And that doesn't just apply to them. It applies to all of us. You got to have strong conviction. I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to obey God rather than man. I'm going to choose to obey. In addition, they had another conviction, and that is that the gospel was good news. That the gospel was good news for all. And so, when they even share it in front of the Sanhedrin, they're telling them that Jesus has died for them. They were a part of Israel, died for all of Israel, that to provide forgiveness of sins for Israel, they are sharing the gospel because it's good news to the very people that were about to try to put them to death. They're like, no, 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 you got to understand, this is amazing. Look what Jesus did. It's why after being beaten, flogged, they're released, and what do they go do? They go day after day to the temple court, so publicly talking about Jesus, and door to door telling people about Jesus, making sure that all of Jerusalem is filled with the good news that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to provide reconciliation for our sins so we can be reunited with God. This is incredible news. They're convinced how good this is. As are you convinced that this is really good news? My son, Camp, I just, I'm, I just, and in awe of him, he's become one of my own spiritual heroes because uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding when I say that. The guy's eight. He's in third grade. He on his own. And you just got to trust me on this. Like, I have not coached him. I've not told him to do any of this. But he just decides, hey, you know what, Dad? I need to make sure that all of my people, all of my friends in my class hear the gospel. They need to know that Jesus loves them and he died for them so that they can be in a relationship with God. And so he wrote out the name of every single one of his classmates on a piece of paper. And then on the other side of that piece of paper, he wrote out a flow chart of questions that he was going to ask his, his classmates. Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Yes or no? No? Well, do you know that he died for you? Yes? Great. Okay. And he just kind of goes down and he's having this conversation with all of his classmates. And literally, I take him out to dinner last weekend. I says, hey, buddy, tell me about the conversations you're having with your classmates. Have you been able to talk to any of them? And he said, any of them? Oh, Dad, I talked to all of them already. 
It's like, you, you've shared the gospel with every one of your classmates so far this school year? He's like, oh yeah, yeah, it's great. And they're coming to my Bible club on Wednesdays. And so at recess, he has Bible club and they're memorizing scripture. And I mean, it's like unbelievable. Because my son, is that not awesome? My son, okay, don't mention that to him. He'll get a big head, all right? But it's awesome. Because my son has a clear conviction that the gospel is good news for all. Do you, do you have a functional conviction? I mean, functionally, if you look at your life, do you have a conviction to obey God and that the gospel is good news? If you're going to partner with God in advancing the gospel, you got to have that. But you need not just the conviction, but you need the courage to follow through on the conviction. So that's the other thing that you see that the apostles have here. They had supernatural courage, supernatural courage. And that supernatural courage came from two places. One, it came from the Holy Spirit, right? That they were sure that the Holy Spirit was with them. Think about what they say in verse 32. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. I mean, what is helping them stand there courageously and share the gospel to the people who want to kill them? It's knowing that they were not alone. They were witnesses of these things, but so is the Holy Spirit, who's God, who is with us. And so we can't keep our mouths shut, and we don't have to because God is on our side. God is advancing the gospel. We've just joined him in that. I love that. They were absolutely sure that the Holy Spirit was with them. I think it's one of the reasons why they would pray, like in Acts chapter 4, for God to do signs and wonders through them because they knew God is working in awesome ways to advance the gospel. And so they're saying, God, will you do this? Because we're not, we're not the ones who are trying to make this happen. You're the one who's doing it. And so I'm going to pray courageous prayers that you show up in awesome ways to get the attention from the people that I'm sharing the gospel with. And guys, I just want you to know, like, I have never, ever seen anyone ever healed by a shadow. And I don't think I ever will. However, just over the last two weeks, I've heard stories of two separate MCs, our midtown communities that meet during the week, who have non-Christians or not yet believers who are part of their MC and who have shared prayer requests Hey, Christians, I know y'all believe in prayer. Will y'all pray about this stuff? And God has moved in powerful ways to answer those prayers. And the not yet believers and those MCs are attributing what's happening circumstantially in their life to the fact that the Christians in their life are praying for them. And guys, it's causing them to lean forward into faith. It's, do you pray? Courageous prayers in light of the fact that God is with you. That's what the apostles did. They had this courage because, man, Holy Spirit was with them. And then they had one more thing. They had this courage because they knew of the hero's suffering. They knew of the hero's suffering. See, their lives were truly at risk. And they're standing in front of the council, and they have, that has a chance, they had just decided to crucify Jesus not long before, and they could do it to them, and yet they stand up and they share the gospel and say, we're going to obey God instead of you. What gave them that courage? Well, I think it's what they said when sharing the gospel. It's how they spoke about Jesus. It gives us insight to where their courage came from. What do they say? How do they describe Jesus? Verse 31, that Jesus is the exalted prince and savior. Prince and Savior. Now, the Greek word 
for Savior there is soter, and it's used of Jesus all the time throughout the New Testament. Nothing too you know, amazing about that use of the word there, that he's Savior is pretty amazing. But what's interesting is this word prince. Like, I don't know if that stood out to you. You're like, I don't really hear Jesus you know, described as prince. Well, this word prince is an unusual word. It's a word only used four times in all the New Testament, always used to describe Jesus, but it's a very hard word to interpret. It's the word uh, archegos or archego, archegos. And, and in some places, like in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it's one of the four places that it's used. Uh, many translators actually translate this word as captain. That Jesus is our captain, which is interesting, right? Like that's, and it's like, well, they, have a, they have a hard time figuring out exactly how to interpret this word because this word in Hellenistic times was used to describe their heroes. In fact, Bill Lane in his commentary in Hebrews explains how this word was often used to speak of Hercules, right? The, mythology, you know, the, the uh, legendary Hercules, a hero, and many other Greek heroes. They were called Archegos. And what um, I love here is that the early Christians, the apostles, they take this word from the Hellenistic culture and they apply it to Jesus purposefully. They say, no, no, Jesus is our Archegos. Jesus is our hero. Why? Because when Jesus had to be courageous, when face to face with his death, if he were to obey God, he was full of fear. I mean, what's his prayer in the garden? God, will you take the cup from me? But he still obeyed, not my will, but yours be done. That even though he knew that going to the cross was going to mean that he would die, that he would physically be tormented, but also relationally that he'd be forsaken by the Father as he took on the sins of the world on himself that we could be forgiven through him. He knew that how terrible it was going to be, and yet he still went. Look at his bravery. He's, look at his heroic heroism. And the disciples said, look, he's our hero. And so they fixed their eyes on him. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 is the other place that Jesus is called the Archegos. Hebrews 12, for those familiar, we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the Archegos, the hero, the author and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Guys, there it is. How did Jesus go to the cross even though he was full of fear? He fixed his eyes on something that he wanted even more that would help him overcome the fear. He fixed his eyes on the joy set before him. Well, what was the joy set before him? You ever think about that? It wasn't perfect relation with the Father. He already had that. It wasn't anything positional. He was already the Son of God. The only thing that he didn't have that he would have if he suffered is us. So he fixed his eyes on you and me. And for the joy set before him, he overcame his fear. And he suffered and he died. Amazing. Now, do you want to know how to overcome your fear? To be courageous and partner with God in advancing the gospel? You do what Hebrews 12.3 says. 
Consider him, our archagos. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See him being brave for you, and it will help you be brave for him so that other people would hear the gospel, so that this place, Austin, would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, so that every man, woman, child here would hear the gospel for someone who loves them. Guys, will you do this? Will you see God is committed to getting the gospel out? He's given you the Spirit, and he's died for you. See him being brave for you. Be brave for him. We're going to end this message by taking uh, communion, which is a way for us to fix our eyes on Jesus and see his bravery, see that his body was broken, that his blood was spilled for you so that you could be reconciled to him and now partner with him in what he's doing in the world to get the gospel to every man, woman, child. May you take this now and may, as you, you know, consider him, as you fix your eyes on Jesus, may he make you brave. We're going to do communion a little bit different. We keep trying different ways since we're in the new place. We're going to do it by, you can come, uh, we've got tables in the front, and we have tables in the back now. So you can just, we're not going to do the, the circle thing we did last week. Just go grab it and come back to your seat. Try to make sure people get, get around you, and uh, we'll end this time in worship and taking communion. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for, again for your commitment to get the gospel out. And I thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. Jesus, thanks for your bravery, that you'd go to the cross, that you would die for us. May we see that and may it move us to live for you. Or that we would choose to obey you and we would choose to partner with you to get the gospel to every man, woman, and child. We love you, God. May you help us fix our eyes on what you've done for us now as we take communion. And may you be honored in our worship and praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.